You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Rume Alexander. Dr. Alexander is a noted presenter and consultant and is currently a professor in the School of Nursing, Assistant Dean of Relational Excellence at the Adams School of Dentistry and formerly the Associate Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Inclusion, Chief Diversity Officer of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. At the end of 2019, she completed her presidency of the National League for Nursing. In February of 2021, she became the American Nurses Association's scholar in residence and advises the National Commission to address racism in nursing and was most recently appointed to the LeapFrog Group board. She has also been appointed to several transformative healthcare initiatives addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion, including the Commission of Workforce for Hospitals and Health Systems of the American Hospital Association, the Tri-Council of Nursing, and the National Quality Forum Steering Committee. As the Senior Vice President for Clinical and Professional Services at the Tennessee Hospital Association, and their first vice president of color for two decades, she designed and executed one of the nation's first minority health administrators programs. She holds a bachelor's of science in nursing from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, a master's of science in nursing and family nurse practitioner from Vanderbilt University, and a doctorate in education, administration, and supervision from Tennessee State University. Welcome to the RN Mentor Podcast, Dr. Alexander. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. I know you're you're, you're very busy and I appreciate your time. Uh, I am going to start with my first question for you. What made you choose the nursing profession as your path? I started out with the notion of becoming a pediatrician and began that path or pursuing that path. And in that space, I realized how much time, it, one, it was going to take to do all the things to become a physician, which when you're 19, 18, 19 year olds, you know, it feels like it's forever. And secondly, I also realized that there was not a lot of time that physicians spent with patients. And literally my piece uh, or desire or, or the space I wanted to be in was around really uh, the interaction with patients. And it, it grew from some childhood experiences that I had had with the medical profession. So I was a child who ended up uh, with a head injury needing stitches, lived in a small rural town in Tennessee all the medical care was delivered by white individuals. 
my parents carried me to the emergency room to get stitches because like head, head wounds bleed, as you know, and they're frightened <laughs> to death about head wounds. Neither of them were right. medically uh, educated. And the physician sent my mother out of the room, insisted that my dad holds me while he stitched. And he stitched me without anesthesia. Wow. I ended up with about eight stitches, nine stitches. Ouch. And my dad's job was to hold me still. And I remember their kind of exchange back and forth because he was pretty upset. My mother's outside the room hearing me scream every time they began to start the sutures. And wow. in addition to that, I am pretty sure there were other head injuries. There was a concussion going on because I had a headache for a long time after that. Wow. And so that's one example of me personally experiencing being treated as if I was not human. Mm -hmm. But I had also seen people in my neighborhood who had not been treated as human. Wow. There was a rumor floating in my neighborhood that if you go in the hospital head first, you would come out feet first. Mm. I thought that was interesting, given that sometimes it seemed to me to be very minor problems. So how did this patient end up in the morgue? Right. I was a curious child. I asked lots of questions. And the answers I got didn't make sense. So between my experiences throughout my early years, child, middle school, teenager, and entering a, a predominantly white institution, because that was the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And I'm right. looking around and there aren't people like me much. And we're still in Tennessee. Right. So how is that? I've come out of that neighborhood. So what's going on here? Things were going on in class that made no sense to me. Uh, and that's how I got into, well, I think I want to spend some time in a space where at least I can be the equalizer to some degree mm. around the care that people like me get. And that's how I got into nursing. How was your experience in the School of Nursing? Uh, because you mentioned that the university was not very diverse. Um, so how was your experience in the program itself? I had always been a really good student with really good grades, but I did struggle some in the program in the beginning. Luckily, I had um, really good faculty who, for whatever reasons, um, just seemed to like me, just seemed to, <laughs> we just kind of clicked, okay? And um, I think it's probably one of those traits I still hold to this day. I'm often told I'm a very approachable person. So I suspect that that's what they were picking up on as well. And um, my experience was still me seeing this perpetuation of disparities of how people were treated. I grew up at a time when babies of color were often cared for by nurses in the basement. They would not mix them with wow. the majority population. 
the only nurse of color I had seen was Julia on the TV show, Diane Carroll. And so all of this was playing out in front of me on a college campus in a university hospital that was a level one trauma center and very well known and with very smart people. And I was really curious about why it was that when it came to those that were underrepresented, there seemed to be this gap in knowledge. There was also what I thought was disrespect hmm. occurring. So, and what I mean by that is, this is gonna sound very simple, but it, it had a profound effect on me. When we were bathing patients, cause you know, that's one of the best ways to begin assessments and to learn things about right. who you're taking care of. Very personal experience. Very personal. It seemed as though, no, let me back up. It wasn't, it seems, it, this was actually the case. When it came down to doing the hair care, they were clueless about what to do with people who looked like me. Right. So they would put a operating cap on those patients, but and, and they would make a mess of the hair before that because they would use a shampoo that works for those who were white. Right. And it's not what you do with black hair. And then after they'd make that mess, couldn't comb through it, didn't know what, then they would put this cap on. And it just infuriated me that something as basic as that was not the case. And then I'm looking at textbooks to this day, some still have these stories in them uh, that stereotyped different patients from different racial groups or ethnic groups. And their descriptions of people like me were just not true. I knew some people that did that, but not all of us did that or wore yeah. that. The one that disturbed me the most there was um, around assessing for breathing. Other than the hair thing, it was also about oxygenation. Mm. Okay, saturation. Right. And they were telling everybody that people who don't get the proper oxygen were going to turn blue. No wonder they came out, they came in head first and left feet first. Because brown skin, coffee colored skin, doesn't turn blue. It turns an ashen gray. So now we're teaching people to misdiagnose or what I call failure to rescue. When we think of failure to rescue, we think of children because that's usually where that syndrome is talked about. Now I was a peds nurse once, so it's easy for me to relate to that. Uh, with the, yeah, with the little babies and the not connecting. But this was failure to rescue. Right. Not connecting, not, not able to assess, and therefore they were getting unsafe care. And it didn't seem to bother anyone except the people in the neighborhood who began this true mistrust of the systems because you know, nine times out of 10, this is what happens to you. Even if it's a minor thing, a minor disorder, 
So yeah. I think that's, you know, that was another spur for me. Um, why is this continuing? What is this about? Um, and how do we get a conversation? How do, how do we have a hard conversation around what's happening to people? And it's, uh, as you're mentioning this, and so much of what you're mentioning, what your experiences were, uh, is still true today. Like textbooks don't necessarily, I'm trying to think back of where we covered some of those basic care and vital signs. And we still, we're still teaching what most test textbooks have, which is primarily based on the white patient. That is correct. And what we also have going on although some are trying to be very intentional because we are calling attention to it. Right. Um, but there, there are studies, particularly, um, I was just on a panel with uh, some folks from medicine. It is, there's, when you can get physicians in a room, young physicians in a room and talking, they, they are still teaching the differences in giving pain medication and they are still perpetuating the myth that people of color have a higher threshold of pain and you don't need to give them as much medication. It is 2022. Right. And we are still teaching practitioners this. It's the same nonsense we were teaching. It's the same nonsense. Decades ago. Exactly. Right. And we know better. We do. We, we actually do. do have the science and uh, the evidence, and we know better. And so there's something deeper there. Yep. Um, and you got to wonder, you know, I like to say it's. It's partly the brain part, the head part, but it's also a heart problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you're choosing, like at this point, you're just choosing not you're to choosing, provide. Yeah. And I, I often teach people that when the implicit is not made explicit, injustices flourish. Mm. So, you know, people think that if they don't say something out loud, or they don't call you out of your name or something that's very offensive. You don't know what they're really thinking. But the behavior exposes them. Right. Well, and it uh, makes uh, that implicit explicit because, it, you know, implicit bias is about buried prejudices. Mm. It's, 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 it's buried prejudices that are almost automatic. So we know that when we see someone in the first seven to nine seconds, almost the blink of an eye, we sum them up. Right. There's evidence for that too. And um, it's after that, we go into confirmation bias. We think we know who it is and what they're about and what they do and sometimes what they eat and the religion they're in and their uh, uh, hygiene practices. We, we think we know a lot. Okay, and then we go around confirming confirmation bias, looking and just picking the things that line up with what we thought, because we do like right. to be right. Okay, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. uh, which often overlooks those who are different. There, there may be a lot that you are on spot about, but when you choose to not ask questions when you assume instead of staying curious and either confirming that what you thought was right or learning that what you thought was wrong 
that that's where the work is. So our brains are kind of lazy. They do want to just kind of, I've seen that before. I, I, I need to be alert for other things that I haven't seen before and making sure you're safe and that's good old Maslow and and um, all that piece. And so the if you just let the brain do what it does, then you're going to live off these assumptions over against understanding we're designed that way. And therefore, we need to be very intentional when we encounter people, and particularly when we're in this area of caring for people. So not assuming, but going, okay, why did I think that about Ali? And I just met him. I don't know him at all. We haven't talked. This is our first encounter. And I've already said I know things about you. We have to, by design, ask ourselves, so why am I thinking that about this person? What do I know to be fact? And what am I assuming? And so the question is always around, it's, it's not around did oppression or discrimination or bias take place? The question we have to ask ourselves is in which ways did that manifest itself? Hmm. in a particular context. Because our brains are going to shortcut. To the our brains assumption. are going to shortcut and you got such structural pieces that were built off of those prejudices and biases right. that are so deeply ingrained and woven. That's what Isabel Wilkerson says in her book, Cast, that if people haven't read it, they should. She talks about, uh, we have these caste systems and they're so deeply embedded, it's, it's insidious. And therefore, they're just in automatic operation. And if you're looking for how racism or bias or prejudice shows up based on the old standard ways it showed up, you'll miss it. Mm. In 2022, we have other ways of delivering that. What I call political ways of delivering that. <laughs> Uh, and it, when I'm really a little bit irritated, I call it nasty, which is a word I made up. It's it's we can be nasty with some nice, cover it up with some nice, <laughs> but it's a bite, right? You know, it's a it's a nick. Um, and some people even call that microaggression versus macroaggression. But I want you and your audience to know that who decides whether it's a microaggression or macroaggression depends on the individual who is the recipient. Very true. What someone might want to call a microaggression, which is usually a political way out. Oh, it was just a minor little thing. Oh, I was just joking. You're too sensitive. You over-dramatize things, minimizing what happened. Right. when the person is devastated by it because I'm the recipient. The ownership is given to the other person. Right, not... right. So you miss, yes. There's... So so the micro, so so what that person I just described is called the micro. If I'm the recipient, I may very well consider it a macroaggression. And guess which one of us is right? It would be me because <laughs> I was the recipient and I know me better than anyone else knows me. It's kind of like pain. So, you know, somebody could have the same degree of cut 
And on a scale of one to 10, with 10 is the high, I might call it an eight and somebody else might call it a four. You could have two patients with the same injury and they're doing that. And we would both be right because it's about our interpretation of it and our experience. Great. It's one of the places we get really caught up. And so we want to defend and dismiss when someone is telling us in all the ways they can tell us. Sometimes it can't be verbal. It's tears. They're telling us they've been harmed and hurt. And since my personal vision is about alleviating suffering in all the ways one can suffer, but I don't want to be a part of perpetuating suffering. So I need to listen. I need mm. to hear. I need to ask questions. I need to put my assumptions on hold. I need to teach my brain to be like a computer where I've got a minimize and a maximize button. And that minimize button should be minimizing certainty. And the maximizing button should be on curiosity. I want to get to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know how you live and move and have your being. And that means I need to ask questions rather than assume. But for a lot of people, that's work. And that's work. That's, right? It you is. have to, you have to. Your yes. defaults, I, I I hate to say, it, but as default, a lot of us are are lazy. We're like, oh, yeah. okay. This and is, it's, it's self work. It's self work. It's self work. Right. Okay. Right. So uh, that's what people have to hear is that we we all create the cultures that we're in. Mm. It's not the chief diversity officer creates the culture, the dean creates the culture, uh, the CEO of the hospital creates it. Everybody in the space creates the culture. So every time someone comes into the space that's new, they alter the culture. Every time somebody right. leaves the space, they alter the culture. Mm. And uh, I define culture as what I love to, this is where I date myself musically, um, but I don't mind because it does sum up what I want to say. <laughs> and so those great philosophers, the temptations have actually defined culture for me. And so that is, it's about the way you do the things you do, how you uh, allocate resources, how you make decisions, how you do strategic planning. What do you do with your hiring? What do you do with your mm. uh, promotions? How do, what about succession planning? Right. All of those things are reflected in the culture. So Absolutely. I can walk into a culture, ask a few questions, and I'm going to have a pretty good read about what the culture's like. Hmm. Because I'm I'm in those spaces asking those questions. And this is what I mean by sometimes people think if they don't hear it out loud, you don't pick it up. But the message is the message is there. If I look at a website, the demographics of the website are on there now. So why aren't they there? Hmm. What are you not wanting me to know? And by the way, demographic data on faculty, staff, and students should be on the web page, on the front page. It should never be more than one click away. I shouldn't have to dig for it. Hmm. Very true. And people will say, 
Oh, it's we've got it. Well, it's on page 22. I, I, you know, I'm tired after page three. Transparency. Very just, true. just be honest about who's there. I want to see the breakdown of the leadership. I don't mm -hmm. just want to know across, you know, demographics by group, ethnic, racial group or age, but I want to know who's in the C-suite, what do they look like? Because they do have some power. And whenever you're in the diversity, inclusion, belonging space, you're talking about use of power. Right. So, you know, there are all these messages that we think are private, these private decisions that have public display. And we have to think about that. When I'm consulting, I often talk about managing perception. You have to think about who wasn't in the room or wasn't at the table or was not a part of the discussion, but they're looking at the, the outcome, the product that's being put out there. And they're gonna make assumptions about that because that's all they've got to go on. They're going, to, they're, they're going to size you up by the piece they're holding. So give them more pieces of the puzzle so that they're not filling in the blanks with the wrong answers. You may be doing wonderful things, but you're not telling it. So all they've got so much. On. Yeah. Happens too That's often. It's a big piece. It's a big piece of the work. Very true. Very true. And it does happen way too often when we don't have the right people at the table. That's correct. Uh, Where we know you make better and, decisions when you have diversity of thought and perspective. Right. And it's one of the things that I, I, I actually I was talking to a colleague of mine not too long ago. And we talked about that is when we look at some of the, for example, the conferences we go to or some of the uh, webinars that we go to that we see the exact same people over and over and over again. And they are like key people. Uh, and I hate to say it for nursing it tends to be primarily white. Uh, key people that are holding multiple board positions uh, across the nation. And when you look at the boards of some of those organizations, they are still primarily white. Right. Um, so, um, so sometimes you have to question that even though it may not be intentional, they definitely don't have the, yeah, all, but the, all the players say, at the table. Right. But they're not also paying attention. Right. If they're letting that happen, then they need to examine why that is and what they need to do about it. You know, you mentioned um, the work I'm doing with LeapFrog. Well, LeapFrog grades on patient safety, right. right in line with what a nurse would be all about, right? But most of the people at that table are not nurses. There may be one other, okay? But I'm the only nurse of color at that table. Wow. I give kudos to Leah Binder, who leads the LeapFrog group, who approached me and said, you know, I think you'd make a great board member for us and you'll bring another perspective. Would you consider that? That's, that's a leader who's paying attention to what's happening in the space. Right. Um, in academia, I think we could do a better job. 
And I think for any business, whether it's academia or, or uh, something like LeapFrog or, or some of the other organizations, we need to be paying attention to who the future nurses or the future um, workers are going to be that we will need. And that starts with paying attention to who's having the babies. Mm. It's just, you know, they don't, this is, this is not, you need to read the tea leaves and the cup uh, and have some magical way of interpretation, been blessed with that. It literally is about some data that you need to collect. And if you look, the demographics tell you who's going to be in the areas of having children and what that population looks like and how are you aligned with your market share. Right. So we need to be thinking about it from a, a very strategic way. And yet we also know we get better results that way. So it's a good business strategy as well as a caring one in terms of our communities and making life better for everyone so that everyone can flourish in the environment. Okay. Part, part of that health equity work we talk about. So there's, there's lots of tools one is not using, I think, in many instances because they're thinking about it in an old way, not in a conventional way. How does this show up now? It's, it's like racism. Um, when we did the work on the commission, one of the questions I kept saying to the group, which we really worked with was, um, we have to talk about how racism shows up. There's not the if question, as I said, how does it show up? When it appears, so you know, we can identify it in a way that an individual would know this is what's going on in this space. Here's, here's this invisible particle or, 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 or energy that is working its way into this meeting or this conversation or this decision or this resource allocation. And it doesn't look like it looked, it shouldn't look like it looked 40 or 50 years ago. But what we discovered as part of the work uh, addressing racism in nursing is, quite frankly, it is showing up in ways very, it's the same stuff showing it looks different, but it's the same element that was occurring in the 60s is occurring in 2022. Right. The stories are the same when you start listening. Now, this is a, this is a great, uh, actually segue for the question that I have for you. Um, <clears throat> well, several questions as we get into this, uh, you were the, um, uh, the scholar in residence for the, for the, for this work, um, A&A scholar in residence, the A&A scholar in residence, uh, for this work, how I, I want to ask what changed, and I have my own theories around this, what changed that all of a sudden now uh, the nursing profession, racism has been around in the profession for quite some time. And Forever. Still, and, and it still exists today. Yes. Uh, what made this a priority for the American Nurse Association to look at it? And my next question for you would be, now what? 
<laughs> okay. So let me start with a couple of things. I think, you know, sometimes you have to read the context and the timing of things. There was a lot going on in the country, particularly around the George Floyd incident. Exactly. Um, where, and, and, and other deaths, Breonna Taylor and others, where you would have heard about this maybe in the 60s or the 50s. You didn't have the video to go with it. Mm. That shows right. you so 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 people could dismiss it, or when they heard about it, it was five or six months after something happened, not in real time. Right. And because we've been blessed with tools that allow us to instantly capture something, Record it's not and a publish. question. And, and it's already out before you can even hear, I mean, before you can blink almost. Right. Um, that has created some of the momentum. Okay. Think about COVID, mm -hmm. who it affected the most. Exactly. Who, who, what the mortality rates from that. Right. Um, which said something about those social determinants of health, which we've been in public health work forever, but all of a sudden that is the most hot topic to be discussed when it's not new. It's just that it fits now with the time. It's the theme of every seminar the and conference across. Every, every, yes, yes, it is. And you just like, how did you miss it when it was discussed back 20, 30 years ago? Exactly. So the bottom line is, um, I think what that's part of it. I think as the profession has continued with previous future of nursing reports and other very important reports around nursing, uh, and quite frankly, in healthcare, like Flexner and some of those other reports, they're all talking about more diversity, but none of them are doing. Right. The numbers that, that it's just not there. I like to talk about. I like to call it taking things off the walls and putting them in the halls. How do you get it off the walls and into the halls? So we're really good about putting it on the walls. We got right. plaques with vision and mission and core values. And <laughs> It says all these things, and then you start walking around talking to folks who live in that space, and it doesn't line up. Right. So I think the way we got into this is that nursing as a collective continues to struggle in this space, if we're telling the truth and being honest. Absolutely. And we know that um, along with that comes some lack of understanding about what's really going on with, within ourselves as a profession. Even though we love to say we're the most trusted profession and we have been for the last 19, 20 years, we're already at the top of the pole and we love to hide behind that. Yes. And while that's true, because if you think about it, nobody spends more time with patients than nurses. Agreed. While that's true, what's happening internally is a whole different matter. Mm. and feeds into why we perhaps don't have some of the diversity at the uh, or making changes in that space that we haven't in the past. We hear a lot about inclusion and belonging, which for those who do stay in the space, say it's not happening for people that are underrepresented. And quite frankly, I get tired I get tired of getting assaulted, my personhood, not being seen, being invisible, being treated as if I'm insignificant, and they leave. Now, 
My theory is that all of us want to be seen as significant. Nobody likes to be treated like they're insignificant. And I think that's a core piece of what's happening in the world space that has us in this space. So tie that back to your, that context and that consciousness. And I, you know, COVID put a halt to things. So people had to get still. They had to stay home and get still. And, and so now they're having to wrestle with some thoughts. They have got time to sit back and kind of survey what's been going on for a while. And I think we had some time to think. Right. Okay. And reflect. And I think that that also helped bring some of this to the surface. So there were four organizations that came together because the commission is not ANA's work right. alone. There was there were four organizations. ANA was one. The National Black Nurses Association was another. NISIMNA, which are a group of um, underrepresented nursing organizations that are smaller than ANA or NBNA. Right. And then there was the Hispanic Nurses Association. So the leaders of those four organizations were talking about this work. And is there some way to partner, to co-create this commission? And so those are the co-leads the co of the commission, all with equal power, all with equal vote. We've been doing work for about two years now. And my role, ANA was obviously um, the largest of the groups. And so ANA was saying, you know, we might need a little help navigating in this space, which is how they got to me mm. and the honor of me being their scholar. And my assignment was to help navigate this work in this racism and nursing space with all four of the co-leads. One of the decisions that was decided is that they needed more participating organizations because it's not just those four. We have all these different specialty organizations. Many of them are um, ethnic minority associations, but there are others like uh, AACN, which is the uh, American Association of Colleges of Nursing. That one's not. Uh, the National League for Nursing, as you mentioned, I was the president of. Right. It's not. It's, you know, those are big organizations like ANA. But then you had other organizations like Kaida Phi, Asian hmm. American Pacific Islander Nurses Association, uh, the Philippine Nurses Association, the Native American Association. So those are under the Nisimna umbrella. My point is, um, all of those came in a space because ANA, in, and it by its own mission, was not necessarily serving those groups. They were paying dues dollars, but they weren't getting their money's worth. Right. They were not in leadership roles. They were not being placed in on committees because it was still predominantly white. 
Board of Directors. Board of Directors. And so those organizations kind of yep. pulled out and said, we have specific needs that we and and we need to come together to help ourselves. And so that's how they formed. And if you read the Racism in Nursing Report, mm -hmm. two national historians wrote the section on the history. Because the history is important for you to understand the context for why this work was to be. And in this history, Absolutely. history is history. It just tells the story the way it was. And all of what I just said shows up in this history. The historians did a fabulous job of really just going through the archives and the history and saying what happened and why these groups were formed. So they invited other participating organizations to be a part of it. And I would say our commission is probably 35 to 40 different organizations wow. being being uh, coming together, being led by these four co-leads. And I'm advising that whole group. Well, one of the first assignments, because you can imagine if you've got that many folks, you got that many ideas and right. perspectives, which are all important, but we did need something that anchored us. And what we what so the assignment was for me was what 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 might that be? And I think that it was we need a definition of nurse of racism mm. that was nurse developed. There are all of these other definitions of racism that were developed by others. Public health. Uh, if you've watched Ibram Kendi's work, he talks about racism. I mentioned Wilkerson; she talks about it. They're not nurses. Right. And and professions are cultures. Correct. So those definitions reflect those cultures. And I was it was like, I, you know, I think we need one that speaks to the to nurses. Because that also speaks to what we do and how we do it. And so I developed this definition of racism. Uh, which got a little bit of an editor tweet, but for the most part, it it was the one that resonated with them. And I think the reason it did is because we're using words that are not in the other definitions, but they are what I call nurse touch points. Right. So that commission's definition is kind of long, but I think, again, let me just share it with you so that you get some sense of the context, because that explains the work we're doing. It is that uh, the commission's definition of racism is assault on the human spirit in the form of actions, biases, prejudices, and an ideology of superiority based on race, that persistently causes moral suffering and physical harm of individuals and perpetuates systemic injustices and inequities. Wow. So assault is not something that people have said in that way, but literally that's what it feels like. It feels like a blow, a punch, right. um, some real attack that's physical, but what makes it even worse is it's the moral injury. It's it's what I call spirit murder. It's a it's a deep wound. And while the outside wounds, if somebody hits you, heal, the bruises go away. Uh, uh, the spirit part, that's a cut that does not 
necessarily heal exactly. to the surface. Okay. And so here we are taking an oath, but we're perpetuating harm. When you, when you assault the spirit of somebody, you, that's, that's tough stuff. And what I, what we think is that if people really pay attention to this definition, they begin to see how deep the hurt is. This is why it can't be a micro aggression. When you actually assaulted the personhood of somebody, you're treating them like they're not human. And so that was, that brought us all together because that was hitting all the nursing touch points. Okay. And then once we, when we, once we got in that space and got that agreement, we began to talk about how can we know more and understand more? Because it seemed to be the people who were always getting assaults understood it better than the people who did. <laughs> um, and, and when you talk to uh, underrepresented groups like that, they'll say, we're so tired of teaching everybody what it is. But you know what? The, the burden is on us in a way because we, we're the only ones who can talk about how, how we feel and how we've been treated. And you can't expect change if you can't communicate. You, why expect things to change when people don't always know what they're doing? Because you don't have to be hateful to mistreat somebody. You can say, bless your heart and be deadly. Right. And you've not said an, uh, uh, an insulting thing at all. So that's this nice that I was talking about. So we decided that we needed to hold some listening sessions and we needed to do a survey of the of nurses out in the field. And what we found out is that three out of four people in the workplace nurses have seen or experienced these challenging acts to who they are. Although they went to the same schools, mm -hmm. had to pass the same licensure exam. This is going on. In fact, um, in the workforce, it's like 92% of the black nurses said they'd seen it, 69% of the Hispanic nurses, 73% of the Asian nurses, 28% of the white nurses. In the survey with about 5,600 nurses, this continued to play out. That's kind of the results of this. Then we began some listening sessions where we invited people to come in and just talk to us in a safe space about the kinds of things they've seen or experienced. And you know, stories are a form of data gathering. It's a qualitative form. It's very important. But all stories lead you to where you are now, which is kind of how we got in this space. Sure. As people were reflecting on the stories and the stories would break your heart. Every time we met, by the end of that listening session, we are in tears. Horrible stories of how we treat another human being. The courage of the nursing profession in spite of this public image to do this is phenomenal. It says something about us as nurses and our integrity and our, 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 our real true calling and how we take our oath seriously. So this is no light work. This is, this is heavy. This is heavy. We Thank had you. white nurses who would get on uh, the listening sessions and they just wanted to hear the story because they'd never seen it. 
or experienced it or they didn't think it was going on. But when they would hear it, it was like, ah, you know, here's somebody, tell, this actually happened to this person and look how harmed they were. Hmm. So I think all of that has something to do with where we are now and why now. A&A took another step and decided because they are the biggest organization and a lot of these others branched off because of the history with A&A right. that they needed to actually have their own reckoning statement. Mm. So some people conflate the commission with A&A, but A&A is just one member of the commission. Then each individual organization has its work to do. A&A's work was to start with the reckoning, the asking for forgiveness, to not wallow in, oh, we're, you know, we did all these bad things, but to say, yes, we did them. We're sorry about that. We pledge to do better and we need to be, we, we're asking for forgiveness because we realize this has harmed you. And that's so, so in uh, June, the reckoning statement at the ANA membership meeting was 100% voted on and endorsed. So the next steps are around dealing with the many ways in which this insidious energy plays itself out. The continued exposure, but the continued work with different groups. Good example being the publishers. A conversation around how textbooks need to be changed. So true. In academia about admission of students. Support, support of students. Absolutely. Leadership in the schools. In healthcare, how do we make sure that we know how to take care of everybody, not just some people. One of the things that was really interesting to me at the beginning of my nurse's career is how is it I know how to take care of people like me and people like, not like me, but my white nurses didn't know how to take care of people who look like me. I could go across the spectrum, but you can't. That was an educational setup that created a space where they didn't know how to do that, Very but they true. should have been taught that. And so I think that's where the work is in its next steps. We can't boil the ocean. I have a um, a colleague on the uh, at ANA, Cheryl Peterson, who says this all the time. We cannot boil the ocean, but you can get your opinion, whatever size it is, dip it in the water, <laughs> Very and true. you can boil that part. And when you get that ball, throw it out and dip in it again and get a new fresh water with something else. There is tons of work to be done in this space. And it is does not belong to just those four co-leads mm. on the commission. And it's not just ANA's work. Every nursing profession, a group has its work to do to help its members be ready to deploy this health equitable care, this non-judgmental care. And there's a sense of personal responsibility too, yes. uh, as a professional nurse, right? Yes, yes. Um, even if I don't belong to the American Nurse Association or yeah. the National Black Nurse Association, any of them, I still have my own work to do as a professional nurse. 
And that's right. exactly right. And and the most culturally appropriate. I don't use the words culturally competent because I don't believe you. I hate culturally I think, competent. We're, right. We're on the, we're on Competence the implies you <laughs> so, have an arrival point. Okay? Right. I tell and people I'm not even... Right. Not, this work is ever evolving. Every person right. is unique. You learn something with every person. And so I talk about being either culturally relevant or culturally appropriate. Very true. Yeah. So you're tailoring to who it is in front of you instead of operating out of those assumptions again. Because the fact of the matter is, as our public health colleagues have so aptly put it, racism is a public health crisis. And it's a driving force of disparities, be they social, economic, or systemic. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, all the forms of racism hurts everybody. Doesn't just hurt the person it went was hurled at. It, it assaults everybody. But this is one of our problems. Our long, long-standing problems, and problems right. don't age well. So we really need to address it. And I think. Um, how social justice is taught uh, is it is is an important piece. Uh, how to be a good ally to those that you see where harm's being hurled and they're the assaults happen and it knocked the wind out of them, and they need somebody else to help without right. even asking for it. Because true in true allyship, you don't have to ask for it. Somebody comes to your aid because they care about you Very and true. they value you. How do we hire for diversity and then and that uniqueness? And then when we bring them in, we let them keep their uniqueness, which is not what we typically do. We hire for the diversity. And then once we hire them, we want them to conform. Want them to assimilate to the culture. They want, right. <laughs> Assimilation yeah, yeah, immediately, yeah, yeah. right? Oh, no, don't bring that in here, Jay. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah. So that's the work, is how do we continue to help? Right. Now, nursing has uh, just, and I want to be cognizant of your time, and I appreciate it. Uh, sure. Nursing has um, uh, an issue with recruitment of diversity. Right. Yeah. Diverse, you know, uh, we have if you look at how the diverse population of nursing has grown, it's been not that great. Right. We've been talking right. about diversity for quite a number well, of quite years. Quite a while. It's, it's a slow, uh, gradual process. And you, and you look at some of these percentages of of diver, you know, I'm, I'm air quoting now diversity within the profession of nursing. And we're still not where we need to be. What does nursing have to do perhaps differently moving forward in bringing that diversity into the profession? You know, there's a phenomenon called the adjacent possible. And the adjacent possible says you have to step out of your box. Mm. You have to you, traditionally how you've done things. Right. And it's not that you got to make these huge jumps. Sometimes it's just color out of the lines just a little bit. So I think it is in our hiring practices. It is in our um, promotion, succession, preparing people. You know, I talked about that big ocean. One of the, one of the big things in the ocean that we've got to deal with 
is how we educate people in this country. It's not equally done. When, as long as we're playing with a tax base as the decider about who gets what, you're going to have unevenness. Sure. We have to think about treating how, how we play out, treating everyone the same as treating everybody fairly, when in fact that is incorrect because the assumption underneath it is incorrect. It assumes everybody starts out the same space and we don't. Absolutely some, not. The, some have been set up from the day they were born not to be equal. This is particularly true in the economic space uh, where we're talking about not only the money that people bring home, but the ability to buy a home or to have a car. And that goes back with the generational, intergenerational, generational uh, with piece. racism and economics yeah. and all the policies that have impacted That's right. people so of color. Right. So what I'm telling you is systemic problems require systemic solutions. When we talk about social determinants of health, which just, I love that we're giving attention to it. But where we really need to be giving attention is to the upstream problems. Mm -hmm. Social determinants is a reflection downstream of what was decided upstream. Exactly. Systemically. Systemically. Who should have what? Who's worth worthy of what? And you know, it's 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 not a differences that get us in trouble. It's our judgments about those differences that mm. gets us in trouble. And that goes back to who deserves it, who should have it, who should not have it. Th those pieces. I think um, we have to pay attention. We talk a lot about holistic admissions in our nursing schools. That has nothing to do with retention. In fact. I think we should pay attention to holistic, the whole person, what shapes them and brings them. But that's an admissions process. What happens once they get there? Where's the support system then? Where are the support systems? Where do we start doing what we've always done? We brought them in, but now we're paying all this attention to certain exams, for example, that tell us that they are biased, but we mm -hmm. use them. Constantly. Constantly. That's a multi, probably billion dollar in, in this industry. But we use around those, those things, exams. But we use that to help us decide who ought to be a nurse and who's not. But they were designed to weed out certain people. And we scratch our head about. And I go, really? <laughs> really? So true. So that's the work. We just like. We did, uh, like ANA is doing with the reckoning, you got to come clean about what you do. That's the adjacent possible. That's the step in that. Got to come clean about what you do and do things differently. Recognize talent in all the ways that it shows up because it doesn't just show up in one way. It doesn't have a race or a gender or an age or a veteran status or a body size. Right. Or a sexuality. Talent shows up in all those forms. The bigger question is how do we tap that talent? How do we bring all that into the space without this idea? Remember the definition I talked about superiority. One's better than the other. Mm. They're different. They're not better. There was a, a, a exercise I used to do over in the School of Dentistry have done it in nursing, but I did it a lot in dentistry, where you uh, 
you would assume the a certain character. And one of them was that you lived in a poor neighborhood. And so it was me trying to bring the people that were in non-poor neighborhoods into what happens in a poor neighborhood because you have no clue what they have <laughs> to do to make it, okay? Right. And if you want to talk about innovative people, go in a poor neighborhood. They are the most innovative people you will ever see. That's true. But if you bring somebody out of this that's outside of that, they really have trouble in this space. And it was to give them a sense of what that's like, to, the empathy part, mm. the humility. So the humility has to be there. There's a, a, a joke sometimes I tell on, in workshops where uh, two young fish are swimming in the water, in the ocean, and an older fish comes by. I like to call him, rather than old, I call him generationally gifted. But the this by age, this fish is couple decades older than the two young fish it passes and so this 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 older fish says good morning boys how's the water and once the two younger fish get far enough for him not to hear it one of them says to the other what the hell is water <laughs> think about it right people are swimming in the water that they're used to, they don't even see the water. For somebody who doesn't live in that, even even though we're all fish, but one could be a saltwater fish and one, you know, yeah, yeah, freshwater. They don't do well in the other's water. Sure. The water in this space is culture. So much of our problems are around our culture. The, yeah, because because we get tied into tradition, and we get tied into um, our our signals of success. I call it our comfort area. Our comfort area, and so oh, we don't need to change because what we're really talking about is change. Yeah, both at a structural level and a personal level, and so we use things like the NCLEX scores. Well, not eight percent of our students, so we don't need change. We're good. So when we start changing what we measure, things will change. Yeah. You can't talk about diversity, but you don't measure it. You don't count that as part of the, this is what we think is success, or this is what we think is a, a good space. And guess what? You get dinged on it if you don't do it well. In other words, you do what gets measured. Exactly. So. I'm really talking about accountability. It's what's lacking. Mm -hmm. And accountability is a culture issue. Who do we let get away with what? Exactly. It's okay for you not to do it, but you got to do it. And that's, that's, that's the discussion, the accountability discussion. So I think uh, how many dues dollars we bring in when we all know that's as much about how you write a grant Right. As it is the idea of the grant. Very true. Okay, so. And your affiliations, right? And your affiliations and your networks. Yep. Yes. So that's that's what we're saying at this commission level. It's these, it, these are systemic pieces that we created. These, these are not 
the Ten Commandments that came down from Mount Sinai. But we treat them that way. Yep. And so getting that adjacent possible of if we just step a little bit out and just do a few things different, we'll get a different result. But I do think people work work hard at it without understanding that they're, they got their blind spots like we all do. Right. I agree. And so that's where we have to be patient and we have to be positively persistent. We have to work at it, continue to work at it, but we have to listen. And we have to listen in a way that we're not being defensive, but we're being curious. Now, as we tell what we need to do, and it all starts with us, we have to do our individual work because the, the most culturally relevant person is somebody who really knows themselves right. and is self-aware. But we have to spend time in this space rather than fighting. I don't think there's implicit bias. I don't think this is happening. I don't see color. I need you to see it. You are not doing me any favors when you do that. Mm. Because my color shaped my life experience. I would have been treated different if I had been a lighter shade. Mm. Very true. And we need to quit acting as though that didn't matter. It's not that it didn't just matter in nursing, it matters in this country, sure. historically. And we continue to, to say these things because we wanna make ourselves feel better. But you can't assault this work without truth. And, they, and it does matter. And it it's absolutely deflection of the. Yeah. It's a deflection of the, it's not me, it's happened elsewhere. Right. right. Like I'm right. not a contributor to this. I'm so not, yeah, I'm... I wasn't born then, so I had nothing <clears throat> to benefit it. Because generationally things happened. Exactly. And yeah. and and what we know also generationally is one act of violence and assaults are an act of violence. One act of violence reverberates through four generations. Very true. So the stories get told. Because PTSD set in, okay? So people are telling that story to the next generation. Oh, when I was such and such that, and then, then they tell it to theirs and then, oh, your grandpa went through or your grandmother went through. You see, I just, yep. it just keeps going. And so we've got to think about the salts. And we're going, well, it's what, I, it's, it's, it's what we call civilized oppression. You're doing it, it's just, you're doing it in a civil way. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, wound, sometimes kill the dreams and hopes of people. Just looks different. It just looks different. There's plenty of work to do. Yeah. I, I think childcare would be a huge game changer. Mm. Huge. If these schools had childcare, you don't suspend your life because you're in nursing school. There was a time when they demanded that of you. Mm -hmm. Okay, they would say, you know, you almost need to be a nun not to <laughs> be in nursing, honestly. Right. Or you couldn't work while you were getting your doctorate. You had to devote your whole life. Well, you can do that if you've got old money in your family. 
And the programs are still like that. And, and there so are many, many programs that are still like that. Yeah, so many but that's postdocs an un, yes, are like that. A, but that's an unreasonable demand it is. for a demographic who doesn't have a whole lot of discretionary income. Very true. So again, we're back to understanding who it is. And and how do you get people at the tables where the money is? Mm. Or who can are high enough in the chain to make the decision? That's the boards and agencies where you get those things on the table. Right. And I, you know, I even challenge people to have this growth mindset and to think about social determinants of that SDOH. Why don't we just change the meaning of that to seriously developing optimum health? Same letters. I'm not talking about their weaknesses. I'm talking about their strengths. Right. Because that's all, you know, I, at the end of the day, you know, like whether we're talking about policy or social determinants of health, and uh, it's all health outcomes, right? At the end of yeah, the day. Yeah, it's all about health outcomes. And if you don't have health, it's hard to do the other stuff. Exactly. As you know, you somebody that's hungry doesn't concentrate well if their stomach's wrong. We know that mm -hmm. even in elementary and right. and it's true with adults. If I'm worried about who's taking going to take care of my children. And those basic uh, needs have to be those made. basic needs have to be covered. And and most most scholarships won't cover child, child care. Right. They won't cover uh text uh paying the water bill, the light bill. Yeah. Things you need and not worried about to be a student. Exactly. Systemic change. So I'll 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 just kind of leave you with this quote. It's one from my mom. And it works, whether we're talking about girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives, children, bosses, colleagues, all these different groups that we've been talking about today. And it's this, you cannot talk your way out of what you behaved your way into. Very profound, deep and profound. Yeah, that's, that's one to marinate on. Definitely. But it's there. We, we we do a lot of talking. But our behavior is talking louder. Mm. So true. And that's the work. We're we're challenging the talk. With the not checking the boxes. You got a chief diversity officer. Check. Oh, we're good. We we make everybody go through an implicit bias class. Check. We're good. And it's a module. A lot of check okay. boxes. Check. We're good. This, uh, we have a diversity council mm -hmm. or an employee resource group. Check, we're good. This is about the experience. 100%. Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for your time today. I am grateful. I would love to have you back again on the show. If, uh, you know, uh, like I, I feel like we could go on for another hour or two of talking. Uh, but I definitely want to thank you for your time. Um, anything, any last words? Uh, I think, I think I'm going to, I'm going to end with my mom's <laughs> phrase. Cause that awesome. usually just shuts me down. You know, yeah, that, 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 was, that was perfect. Uh, but that I was would, perfect. yeah, I, I think if there was anything else I would say, and it is that we, I took Latin in school and there's a phrase that says, loosen to them. It means send forth your light. Mm. So that's what I want folks to do. Send forth their light. Think about 
what you say, what you do, how you treat people sends things a tremble in people's lives. Mm. And if what you're setting a tremble, just ask yourself if what I'm setting a tremble is what I want to be known for. If it's not, and it's not lining up with your passion and your purpose and your call, it's saying you've got work to do. We we all have, I think, work to do. We all have work to do. Thank you so much again for your time. We have been listening to Dr. Rume Alexander. Uh, grateful for the work that you have contributed to, and I'm sure we'll see more. Uh, and we, for all of our listeners, uh, we will see you back here with uh, more great and incredible nurses doing incredible work. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.